giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Robbie Russell, VP of Engineering and Partner at Planet Argon. Robbie, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. Has that always been what your title was? No. It okay. was at one point, I think it was like a chief evangelist probably for the first several years. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, I don't, we never, whenever you really use like titles like CEO or anything like that before until about four years ago when my business partner, we kind of went through a process of splitting up some of the roles in the organization because there was kind of a lot of shared overlap. And when we looked at everything that who was responsible for what across our leadership team, it was a lot of Robbie. And that wasn't obviously very sustainable. And so, he moved into a CEO role. And then for me, I ended up taking over and stepping in and helping kind of as an interim solution, he- heading up the engineering team specifically for at least for the last almost two years now. Mm-hmm. And then outside of that, yeah, then also being one of the owners here. How has that been, that transition and, and that focus? It, it's interesting because uh, we're not like a huge agency. So there's mm-hmm. still part of me that's involved in business development is still a big part of me and of what I'm, what I'm responsible for. So but as far as heading up the engineering team again, because I had been able to step away from that for, I don't know, probably five years or so, getting into the process of, you know, having one-on-ones with all the developers, you know, being responsible for recruitment, kind of helping oversee that process and kind of helping people evolve them themselves as developers. It's been good because I think for the first several years that I was doing it, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And the whole thing was I was hiring people that I knew that did Ruby, that were local, and that was enough of the of, of check marks there that we can throw them on projects, and they seem to be way smarter at programming than I was. And I thought that my skill was that I could sell developer time to mm-hmm. prospective clients, and uh, I, I would never call myself like a great developer by any means, at least at that point. And so, as far as the transition of stepping away from like CEO type role responsibilities, that's it's been good in the sense that I can focus a little bit more on some of my. At least what, according to my strengths finder results that I'm a little bit more on the, uh, I'm, I'm good at helping people develop themselves professionally, mm-hmm. less wanting to spend my time getting into the analytical side of business numbers. And I just want someone to say, yeah, we're good for the next three to four months business, you know, pipeline wise, and you need to hire another developer too. And so now it's more of me asking for budgets to do things like a salary increase or hire somebody. And it's nice to kind of not have to be worried about so much of the, the finance of, side of the business. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you're not that big. So how? what does Planet Aragon look like today? We are a team of 14 at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, all in Portland? or Yeah. Yeah, we're still yeah. all local, mostly all on site. Uh, people work from home a few days a week or in the afternoons pretty commonly. But yeah, we haven't embraced the remote approach yet. And that's been something we've talked about. And I think a lot of companies go through that process. But I, I admittedly just haven't figured out how to mentally wrap myself, my head around that. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the type of environment I want to cultivate for our team. Or maybe it's because we have another three years on our lease for our office and <laughs> what are we going to do with this big empty space? Maybe it's maybe it's a bit of both. Now, is that the kind of thing, the office, I mean, is that the kind of thing you would still be involved in today, even though your role has changed? In terms of making Deciding on... what to do, yeah, either getting a new one or... I have a pretty big influence in that. And I think it's, it's been an interesting conversation between Gary and my business partner and I, cause I think he's been leaning more. I'm just going to be open about this. He's been leaning more about the idea of like, well, maybe this remote focus is actually a good thing for us to start approaching. And I'm like, well, I, I'm the one that's actually having the bigger struggle with the idea of mm-hmm. letting go of the idea of having a central place where most of the team shows up every day and gets to collaborate in real time and in person 
And a number of our clients are local, so they come by on a regular, somewhat regular basis, not like every week or anything, but there is something nice about having that continuity. And I don't personally enjoy working, say, at home in the same way that some other people do. And so I don't know if it's more of like a selfish thing that I need to get over or not, but uh, mm-hmm. it's something that I'm, I'm navigating, I suppose. But I, I, yeah. because of there's two owners, yeah, and we're not that large of a company, I still get involved in some types of discussions like that. I haven't totally released that. I have, I have a lot of influence there. Yeah. But I'm becoming more accepting of being open to some changes being made that may not be my, say, decision. So how long has Planet Argon been around for? I started doing Planet Argon in 2002, in August 2002, as a freelancing thing for a few years. And so I was mm-hmm. moonlighting for a couple of years while I was working at another company doing like .NET type development and then worked at another company that did some like Postgres and PHP and Perl and Python work. But their big focus was Postgres. And then in the spring of 2004, I quit my job to start doing Planet Argon freelancing-wise as a full-time thing because I thought that I could work half as many hours, make just as much money. Because when you look at your what I was charging for per hour, which was something stupid like $60 an hour or something at the time, which it's not, it's not like nothing, but it's, I think when I was doing the math, I'm like, I didn't realize mm-hmm. how much time I would need to spend on selling and trying to win new work right. after you get past those first few projects that you feel confident enough to, say, leave your full-time job to, to go work on. And the other idea was I wanted to focus a lot more on music at the time and thought that that would be a, a way to give me some flexibility in my schedule to do that. How has that gone for you? Uh, well, I failed at the music thing and that my band kind of fell apart within a year while Planet Oregon was like taking off and I was hiring people. So kind of at the same time, I became successful at starting a, an agency while the band kind of fell apart at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and then I kind of always looked at myself as a failed career and as musician and ended up accidentally running a business instead. So congratulations on, I guess, 14 years since going full time. Yeah, it's been, it's been an adventure so far, for sure. Yeah. How, long, how long has it been for you now? We started in 2003. So it, we, and, Similar. And actually, we're recording on the 5th of June and we started on the 2nd of June oh, wow. well, in 2003. Happy, so we just had birthday. our 15th anniversary. That was a big one. I, did you ever get a uh, tattoo or have discussions about getting a logo tattoo at some point? <laughs> Only in jest. I think we, I had an agreement a long time ago that I was going to do it after, I think it was 12 years. And then that's been three or four years and I have not since done that. And then, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm not convinced that that was a good decision in the first place, but the other person yeah. wasn't going to do it either. So, yeah. So it's, you know, I think 14, 15 years is a long time speaking personally, you know, part of what has made me be able to do this for so long is change and being relatively intentional about what my job is and understanding that about every two or three years, I have changed my focus or my job or how I'm spending my time in order to keep things going and interesting and sustainable over the long term. Is that what the change was about in terms of responsibilities and splitting it up with your founder or was it something different? You know, at the the time, I don't know if you're familiar with like uh, EOS or Traction. I am, yes. We haven't talked about it on the podcast, but it is a book I've been reading. Okay. Is it something that you're considering uh, as implementing or kind of... So we're letting the cat out of the bag here, (laughs) is that I've been implementing some of the things from EOS without telling anybody, which is actually counter to what you're supposed to do. (laughs) You're supposed to tell everybody, you're supposed to get everybody on the same page, you're supposed to give everybody a copy of the book, you're supposed to like get total buy-in 
I, I might do that if we were doing strictly, if I was like, we are doing EOS, but we're not. I just think that there are some of the things that we can use at ThoughtBot. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to unleash that with your, no, your no, team ahead okay. of time. We'll let the cat out of the bag. But the, uh, you know, admittedly, I think we went through a similar process that we would, we thought, well, maybe we can cherry pick some things out of this, like I do with any sort of best practices type book. And like, all right, we, we can try these things ourselves. And if, like, we're clever enough to figure this stuff out. And we ended up going through this process for about a year where we conducted our own like leadership retreat weekend where we kind of remapped out and put together a 10 year vision because our, at that point, we'd been around for, I think this was probably three or four years ago now, probably mm-hmm. four years ago. And we never had any long-term business goal outside of let's make more money than we're spending and have fun doing it. That was like my business motto. I didn't have any ambitious goals. If someone said, where do you see the company in five to 10 years? I'm like, hopefully right. still around and interesting. So we're doing interesting new things with different types of clients, but there was never this kind of big vision. And and so at that point, we, we took a step back. And one of the questions I asked the leadership team was where do you see yourself in 10 years? Like think about yourself 10 years from now, because I, I really needed to ask myself this question, but I wanted yeah. to hear their responses too. Like think about the context of where you're going to be in your life, what age you're going to be, what your health is going to be like. How do you imagine like a, a normal day going for you? And do you want to be doing the same sorts of things that you're doing now? And can Planet Argon be a place where we could evolve into something that still has a place for you while also providing a place where the folks that have been here for a number of years to, for them to continue to grow, or are we now a ceiling for them to continue growing? So either folks are going to outgrow us and that, and that's okay. And they can go on to other things in their, in their career. Maybe we're a stepping stone or one of the, the many stones that they have in their, their story. But how can we provide a space where we can nurture and mentor and grow together in mm-hmm. a way? And I, and so it was the first time we ever kind of like, no, maybe we do want to be a larger agency. Maybe we do want to grow our company in different ways that we kind of rejected for a long time. Because I'll just kind of go back to the early days of Planet Aragon was getting involved in the Ruby on Rails community pretty early. And I have like a story about how I even got introduced to Rails in the first place through a job that was offered to me and then taken away. But I'll get into that. But we basically went from two people working on Planet Aragon full time to 12 people working in my attic in like three weeks to take couple new projects. So we became the size that we're are today, like I'm going to say overnight, but within a month. And yeah. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but we had all these projects we took on and we're like, all right, let's see what happens. And then in, after a couple of years, people started leaving. 2008 happened. We saw like this huge drop and folks moved to San Francisco to go work at other interesting new startups and have gone to go on and do some pretty amazing things. And we went down, we scaled down to five people and it was for about a year and a half. I thought that was like the most amazing number to me. And I was like, oh, this is great. We're really profitable. There's not a lot of layers of organization and project management stuff that we're having to worry about. And then what ended up happening during that that period was we found ourselves having clients that were really enjoying working with us. And they're like, we wish you were bigger so that we could do more with you. Hmm. And we kept rejecting it for a while. And we're like, no, we want to stay where we're at. We don't ever want to hire people because we didn't know what we were doing. We're not set up to know how to manage and lead people. We made a lot of mistakes early on. And then, so it was kind of like this resistance. And then we started maybe every year sort of adding one or two people. And we ended up growing to about 20 people uh, around the same time that we moved into this office space and then had one of our biggest projects get cut in the middle of the project and canceled. And we had to like lay off some people and, and then we scaled down to about 13 people. And so we're now going to this like phase again of two years after that, where are we going to start growing the business again? 
or a little like skittish after ramping up for that time before that, before some big projects and taking on bigger office spaces and stuff like that. But I'm getting into a lot of other interesting mm-hmm. little weeds in there, but it's been an interesting process over the years. And going back to kind of your original question in terms of every couple of years changing things. So kind of shifting back to the US side of things, there was too many things that's kind of I was responsible at the time. And it was definitely impeding on my ability to know where to focus best. And like, this kind of common theme with me is I kind of wish I had a boss sometimes to help at least tell me, just focus over here on these two things inside of the business. And that's where you need to focus. And these other things can kind of be reduced. And there's that mm-hmm. prioritization. And I'm sure you have those those moments where you can be doing like 10 different things and trying to figure out where the best use of your time is. is always a challenge. And then through that process of when we reduced the size of the team, I ended up taking over, heading up the engineering team again, because we needed to change up some leadership in that space. And so I've been kind of like interim VP in engineering for about two years now. And that's been intentional so I can kind of reconnect with the development workflow and help set up some stuff and kind of maybe potentially groom some folks to help take over that department again in the mm-hmm. future. But you're not like fully executing on EOS or did you continue to go down that road? We are following EOS in that we have quarterly meetings with our whole team. So we go through that process and we have like the 50 minute or whatever uh, presentation that we'll walk through people, what our goals are for, or what our rocks were from the last quarter, what these rocks are, how successful we were on meeting our objectives, where we're on track with our you know financial goals for the year, some of the upcoming things we're working on. And so we're, that's all pretty transparent. We Every Thursday we have our L10, level 10 mm-hmm. meeting as a leadership team. And that's probably been my favorite thing to bring into our business, which is, seems silly to add, just a meeting becomes the most effective part of my week is that we try to not bring up those little issues that pop up throughout the week in real time with our with our leadership team. Mm-hmm. So if things pop up, we put them on our issues list. And then on Thursday, we know that there's going to be a, a reliable, consistent process we're going to go through to prioritize what we're going to talk about and talk through those things while also reporting on our scorecard numbers and other things that we are kind of tracking as a business. And then we've since implemented similar types of meetings. Like I just about two hours ago had a similar meeting that we do every two weeks with our development team where we follow a similar format where mm-hmm. we start off with like some good news things. We talk about, you know, personal professional highlight from the past couple of weeks. We talked through, you know, to do's that are still open that one of us, you know, might've got uh, assigned outside of, because you need to work through, you work through your issues and then there's to do's that need to come out of that as far as, all right, you're going to be responsible for going off and doing this thing, or we need to go add some documentation for how do we do this new part of our process or something. And so we go through our to-do list and then we spend most of the time just prioritizing what our issue list is and then just kind of hashing that out as a team and just trying to stay on focus and then figure out what next steps are there. And then we rate the meeting at the end and that's been something. So we've been doing that in a couple different departments of the, of the company, which has been really helpful, I think for us. Do you feel like it's leading to the business results that you hoped for? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes and no. I think it's getting us more on the, the same page. We're not so, I'd say, fly by our seat type of approach. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was a, a funny question that came up by one of the people on our leadership team the last quarter because after a couple weeks, Last year was pretty flat for us, mm-hmm. and this year we've been we're, do, we're doing much better so far this year. And but there was this one point where one of one of the folks on the leadership team asked, "Are we just extra following this process, but it's not really yielding the results that we're hoping? Like, oh, we're not making way more money than we were a couple of years ago. Yet we have this more we have more process in place." And I think the the takeaway has been for me is like, well, we have something predictable that we know that we can use when things start to ramp up again and we start hiring more people. 
there's a structure in place that we've gotten in a rhythm with. And I don't also don't want to just follow a process for the sake of following a process. So there's like a balance there. And so I have to kind of second guess that a little bit. But there is, I do find us speaking in the same language about what our process should look like and knowing there's something we can rely on when issues pop up that we can kind of mm-hmm. go to. And we're making, I think, smarter decisions. Whereas I feel like historically we used to make a lot of gut-based decisions based off of like, well, I think this is what our pipeline looks like. I think we can hire someone. Let's go ahead and do it and just cross our fingers that it all works out. And now I think we're being quite a bit more um, analytical about that, whether yeah. that's good or not. I don't know, but we'll yeah. see. Where are you headed then? What are the big plans for Planet Argon? Well, we don't know what technology stacks are going to look like, I think, in you know 10 years from now. And right. that's an important thing. And I think one of the things I was thinking about ahead of this conversation was a, like how you approach your least how I perceive how ThoughtBot approaches the type of work that you bring on and the type of work that we bring on and what's similar or different. And my assumption is that what you folks do is um, you kind of come in on projects for like startup era phase or you're helping companies like expedite a a big backlog of new features. So you're designing and building out products for those companies and such. Am I kind of on track with that? We have two major sort of types of projects. One is, and this is the majority of the number of projects that we work on. And I, you know, it's a sort of made up statistic, but I, you know, I think it's about 60% of all of our projects are, or we're going from concept to launch of a new idea and we're designing and building the first version mm-hmm. of the product. So we're figuring out how to refine the concept and validating it and testing it with users and then doing design and development of the idea to bring it to market. And almost everything we do launches the first version in 12 weeks, and then we iterate from there. And we do that for both brand new startups, founders, uh, co-founders, but also larger companies who want to get outside of their walls. They have a new idea and they know that their existing organization can't execute it internally. A lot of our IT departments are set up to just sort of maintain things or to administrate networks and software and that kind of thing rather than build new products or internal Mm -hmm. tools. That makes sense. And then the other 40% is someone comes to us with an existing product, but they have some problem that they need our help expertise solving. And that could be a design problem. Maybe they've achieved product market fit, but now they need to do a redesign or improve their product in some way. Or it could be performance and scaling. Um, It could be a team problem or a a technical debt one. But we don't do like staff augmentation where it's just like, yep, we're giving you two developers. We'll see you later. Uh, We'll see them when, when you want to cancel the contract. They'll be back to us. We don't do that. It's always we know why we're there and we know when we'll have been successful. Nice. And is there usually like a general timeline on how long that relationship lasts? Or do you find you're working with clients for several years in that sort of role? Most of our client relationships actually last about six months. Okay. And because most startups or new product ideas that we're working on launch within 12 weeks, we're typically then continuing and doing iteration and then starting to either hire or train a team that's going to take over from us. Nice. And we're really not just bootstrapping the product, but we're bootstrapping the team and really the whole business as well. That's nice. So I'm kind of familiar with that approach. And what, we, what we're focused on, kind of speaking back to that, our long-term plans, is we found that that's not where we're really successful is in that early mm-hmm. era phase of a project. And mainly 
I think it was an interesting thing for several years, or at least early in the Planet Argon, being an agency and not just like just me working on freelance was working on startup projects. And I think there was this feeling of working with the volatility of those startups uh, mm-hmm. being a challenge for us. And I, when we started taking over projects from other freelancers or from other agencies or in, from internal teams and being kind of an ongoing support and maintenance and iterative type of like building on top of something, but not necessarily, we need to add these three new features and then we're done with the relationship and more of, hey, can you be our partner for the next few years on this project? That's when we found kind of our sweet spot of being like, okay, we can, we're really good at context switching and jumping between different projects and helping put out a little fire over here or taking care of this and that um, and helping kind of companies in that phase where they're not doing any drastic big development projects. Mm -hmm. I mean, occasionally some of our clients do that, but we have, we're basically set up with our clients where we've got monthly retainers for a bucket of hours for our team. And then we just yeah. kind of use that, whether it's front end, back end or design or what have you. So that makes our pipeline look pretty predictable in the sense of we know what we're going to be working on at the end of the year because we mm-hmm. have these base clients. As long as we don't screw up that relationship somehow, they should be sticking around with us for a number of years, hopefully. And so we're only bringing on a handful of new clients every year. And so I think over the years, we've been distracting ourselves, trying to figure out how to get better at optimizing ourselves around building products for startups and not always being really super successful because we weren't really ever that great at, say, selling the idea of like, no, let's keep an MVP down to about 12 weeks. And I'm sure you've had a lot of experience with startups being, you know, they're maybe investing some of their own money into this project, you know, mm-hmm. taking money out of their 401k or whatever, or not telling their significant other that they're taking money out of their um you know, their investment or nest egg. And I was having a conversation that a couple of weeks ago with someone that I was chatting with, and I was like, that's insane. But we don't have those type of clients anymore where we're kind of like having to replace that workload. Yeah. And, and in a weird way, like we found that our uh, retention rate of employees started to, to lengthen around the same time. And we found that things just felt a lot more stable. And we had yeah. been able to build up really good long-term relationships with those clients when we've been working with them for a number of years. That's become our focus is we're not trying to be that new team that's going to take over or to build you something new. We're here to take over, say, primarily Ruby on Rails applications and make them better and help them get out of, say, some technical debt problems uh, and then help them kind of take those some steps forward to improve their their code base and make it more reliable and just be the go-to team rather than mm-hmm. them have like that one or two developers sitting in the corner that nobody knows how to interface with at their company. Right. And then the most common scenario that someone hires us would be, our freelancer disappeared, or we've gone through three freelancers, it's time to upgrade to maybe an agency, or we have one full-time developer that's been working on this for three years, and they just got a new full-time job because they miss working with other developers. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're not fit to like lead a development team because we don't really have the budget to right. manage like a team of you know two or three developers, or even know how best to do that. Well, I'm a big fan of focus, and I, and I like how you have focused... And it is a. You're right. It's different than the areas that we focused on, and we very much went through a similar process. And and it's very clear that our strengths were, especially since from the beginning, design and development were always a part of, of what we do. Mm-hmm. And having that real integrated design and development team executing on new ideas is just part of the what, what we've always done. And we're not well-suited to long-term, multi-year kinds of things where we're, we're essentially members of your team. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that the, the focuses have been, have been different. 
and I'm, I'm trying to think of a clever segue to talk <laughs> about Rails. But no, you have also focused, you know, it's right on your website, of that focus on Rails. Because clearly that's where your experience and expertise is over the 14 years. But you, a few minutes ago, alluded to maybe some other things or do it, like how do you deal with the potential that over the course of the next 10 years, you don't know what technology is going to look like? It's a great question. The question about whether or not we should dig deeper into the Rails ecosystem of being what we're going to focus on or not. And we actually, you know, if we went back more than a decade ago, we were, we knew we couldn't focus on Rails forever. Like, it, like things were going to change. Mm-hmm. We knew that. Yet that's still how we're in business. And that's what people keep coming to us for. We're like, okay, yeah, we do that. And that's, uh, but we've, we've also been experimenting over the years of like, Hey, let's talk more about how we're using these other technologies. We, we went through a phase of getting really into Ember. We were doing some stuff with Angular and we weren't really finding admittedly for our niche of taking over projects. We got to build some new projects with that. Cause every once in a while we might have a new project or build some new, we'll work with one of our clients on building out something and like, like that, like a big Ember project we did was mm-hmm. their .NET shop and they came to us saying, Hey, we wanted to integrate with a, one of these new JavaScript frameworks, like a new um, client facing side of our business with our .NET API that we're working on. And so we ended up using Ember on that. We can collaborate with them because we'd done a number of projects with them in the past, but we, we still weren't seeing a lot of our ideal clients in the, they have an existing application that's been around for a few years and they're profitable and they have some structure or concept of how to manage a budget as a client. And so we're kind of like, well, we, we might have to wait a while before some of these technologies kind of mature to a point where those folks are needing teams like us to come in and help take over and get them, help them catch up on versions that they've fallen behind on or clean up the technical debt or improve their test suite, uh, improve the performance of the application and what have you, or just, you know, clean up and make things better than they were when we found them. And so I think when we've dabbled in different languages, like we have folks on the team that are dabbling with other things on side projects from time to time, and they might be, you know, playing around with Erlang. Or, but from our perspective, it's like, I'm not going to do a lot of selling of that we do Erlang because I just don't think there's actually a lot of work for us to take over yet. And maybe it might take a few years before our focus of taking over projects makes sense where something's been sitting around for a couple of years and the developers that were working on those projects kind of move off to new shiny things again. And so maybe we become the team that doesn't work on new shiny things, but the team that comes in and shines them back up and, you know, improves the long-term maintainability because we're trying to kind of combat the, uh, this needs to get rewritten in a different language or a new right. framework. Cause I don't, I just don't think that that's a good investment for those companies to, to go down that process. Cause there's nothing really inherently wrong with using Ruby on rails or these other technologies. And so it's, you know, just because it's not new and shiny in the same way. And I can get into some statistics there too, from what we got from the Rails hosting survey about these some concerns or trends that we're seeing there too. So, Yeah, so you, the Rails hosting survey, what was the first year that you did it? So we did that first in 2009. And so kind of the backstory of why we did it in the first place was part of our business back, I think from 2004 to 2009, for about five years, we started spinning up servers at a co-location right. here in Portland and we were hosting Ruby on Rails applications for developers mainly because when we first got into the into Rails there really wasn't really anyone offering kind of affordable hosting like a shared right. hosting environment for our developers which seems you know and so we were kind of filling that niche a little bit <laughs> it does and, seem crazy but at, you know we were doing the same thing at the time i think pretty much every company because they were unsolved problems and there was no existing hosts that were solving them, was doing Rails hosting because <laughs> you needed to. Yeah, we needed for our own stack or for our own clients. And it was something else we could sell our clients. And the other part, 
in my idea, at least the theory I had was if we offered ourselves like a, like a cheaper engagement that folks like basically productizing part of our business, then it would get more exposure. And then that might lead to more design and development work for us because people would come to us and be like, oh, like freelancers would refer companies to host their, their application on our servers. And then maybe those freelancers would go off and be you know, get another job or another contract and those, their client would be like, Hey, can you recommend anyone Mm -hmm. to work on this project? And we'd be like, and you're like, ah, funny enough. Yeah. That's what we focus on. (laughs) And so, so in 2009, we ran this survey because admittedly we were starting to see new things like Heroku was out for maybe a year, give or take around that time. Can't remember exactly when they came out, but it was definitely something we were aware of and whatever the heck cloud meant was becoming this thing. And Customers were asking about it, and we we're not really convinced that we wanted to invest a lot of time into diving into that space and building some good infrastructure out there. And so we were like, rather than just run with our gut, why don't we pull the community and get a sense of where are people hosting, where are they moving, how much are they spending hosting their Ruby on Rails applications, and you learn a little bit more, and, and and then we'll share that with the community. And so we did that in 2009, was uh, kind of circling back to at least when the first one was, and then we've done that a total of five times since then. So almost basically every two years since then, we've mm-hmm. rerun similar questions so we can have some comparisons. And in 2009, when we ran that, it became very obvious that we were falling behind and the technology that we're using to host things. And we're like, let's not keep investing in this. It barely paid for itself most of the time. And the person that headed it up was kind of not sure. And they were having some interest by working from another well-known Ruby on Rails hosting company down in San Francisco was kind of like working on poaching them. And so it was just like, you know what, let's find someone to buy this from us. And so we ended up selling that to uh, Blue Box up in Seattle. And so they took over mm-hmm. all those customers and that infrastructure and servers. And and then they went off to do their thing and later get purchased by IBM or what have you. Yeah, but I'm IBM, so, yeah. I'm so glad that we were able to get rid of the decommission our physical servers and leave that world because that was not that was not my favorite part of what we were doing, but it was an interesting one. And I, and it was actually interesting. I was listening to one of your other podcasts recently. We were talking about branding and stuff. And one of the, mm-hmm. one of the things we struggled with for a number of years after we parted ways with hosting is that people still thought of us as a hosting company in a lot of ways when that was like 15, 20% of our revenue was on that side of the business. But that's what most people knew of us as. Yeah. And so there was a, a interesting lesson there about like diluting too much can have like a weird long-term effect on it. And you start wondering if you should rename the company or something. And mm-hmm. so. Do you know off the top of your head how many people you know responded to the first one in 2009? I think it was probably around 1,200 people, give or take. Mm-hmm. In this mm-hmm. last one, we had 2,000. I was curious whether it has peaked and gone back down or whether it's consistently grown or is there a trend there? It has grown every year. Or yeah. every, every two years that we've run it. And I don't know how much of that is. I, I can't say that's because the Rails community is just larger now. It's just mm-hmm. uh, what we find is that like when DHH posts a tweet about it or the Rails conf Twitter handle, we get uh, some right. nice spikes there. And so we think we're getting better at marketing or at least reaching out to folks that we think would help us get more reach. So we always try to at least beat our previous number as like just our own internal goal here. But, but yeah, we had over 2,000 people from 72 countries respond to the most recent one. So obviously you've been doing it for many years now. Is there something that stands out to you as not that has changed, but that has remained remarkably consistent? Uh, I'm I'm thinking of like there's there's definitely questions we removed this last time. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. 
because we, we looked at the previous numbers, like when we were working on this a couple months earlier in the year, we were kind of talking through all the questions and we ended up removing questions where we were seeing kind of flatlining happening. And mm-hmm. so we're like, let's just stop asking that. And so I'd, I don't can't think of one of those off the top of my head. One of the things that up until this time I thought was consistent, but I would have to, you know, I don't have all, all the past ones, but I had historically felt like gem usage, like the popular gems seemed relatively consistent. And it felt like this time there was more change in that area than in past years. Like the things that I thought might be at the top weren't necessarily at the top. Can you have one in specific that you're thinking of there? All the ThoughtBot ones. No, okay. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we can look at like Git's been pretty flat. Like Git usage, like that was, I remember like right. the first time we did it, like Git, it was growing in popularity, but it was still like the small thing. I think Subversion was definitely bigger at the beginning, but we ended up asking new questions this year too, which was, I think, mm-hmm. to at least get some variation in there. But the, you know, I'm trying to think back to some of the things that were more kind of flatline over the years and got a little boring to ask outside of like, GitHub and, and obviously the news this week about GitHub and GitHub, I think, went down a little bit before this week's news. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like in a couple of years from now. But because um, you know, I think GitLab had been growing a little bit in popularity because I think it was like 11% a couple of years ago. And then I don't have the numbers up in front of me, but I think it's definitely increased a little bit since then as well. Yeah. So it's at rails-hosting.com slash 2018. For most of the questions you do have or especially at the bottom in terms of web server usage, database usage, you're showing that over time. And um, at least among survey respondents, it's one of those things where it's so obvious how Postgres and MySQL have flip-flopped in the community. But what is also obvious is how long that has been happening for. Like, and this is where like the compression of time over many years mm-hmm. like in my mind i still vividly remember when we were actively switching from post mysql <laughs> to postgres and it seems like not too long ago but it was actually you know the the inflection point happened in 2010 2011 yeah and it's just been a steady increase in postgres and a decrease in mysql in our community since then and when was heroku released i feel like that to me is one of the biggest oh, influencers yeah. of that i think as I mentioned earlier, my previous, my last full-time job, I worked at a company where my boss wrote the O'Reilly book for Postgres, and I was very much indoctrinated in using Postgres for so much of what we did and doing a lot of like interesting stuff in the database back then. But I was really skeptical about using MySQL after that, and it was one of the the ways I got interest involved in the Ruby on Rails community early on was contributing Postgres versions of database schemas because we didn't have schema, you know, migrations and things mm-hmm. back then, and was kind of like the Postgres person that was constantly advocating and I would kind of go to bat for Postgres and people are like, nah, MySQL is fast and it's great. But we see this like whole shift there where it's not even really like a question anymore. It's been interesting just to see how that's shifted. And I think a lot of it, as much as I want to say, it's because Postgres is so much better. I think there's a lot more contribution by the fact that Heroku offered free hosting. It needed to be using Postgres. And so people just started using it and more guides started making it easier to set that up. And regardless of whether or not Basecamp and DHH are huge advocates of MySQL to this day, Postgres dominates the community. Yeah, it's interesting. It does dominate our community. And I think you're right, driven by Heroku, but so many large sites are still using MySQL like that, and they swear by it. And it's hard to say whether it's legacy and momentum, you know, like obviously 
companies that are still using PHP, they're primarily on MySQL as part of the LAMP stack. Right. Another area of the, the results outside of like the, one of the new ones we added was like, which gems do you love and are most frustrated with? And it was mm-hmm. funny to see some of the same gems listed twice. And right. like people either seem to really love Devise and also find it really frustrating. Or I think uh, RSpec was another one that showed up in both of those. And right. I'll, I did see Paperclip back there and we're going to miss it. But <laughs> actually it shows up in both, not in the top five. But it's funny how that people love and detest things. And I, ex- I expected Noko, I wasn't surprised by Noko Gary kind of being at the top of that list because I think it's this panic every time you're running like a bundle install and it just kind right. of freezes for that five seconds to anywhere to like three minutes of just sitting there when you're wondering if it's going to be successful or not. And you're like, did I have everything I needed on my machine to make this work? But that's like the reality we live with with that gem. But another thing that I, I thought was interesting, at least as far as the the trend of Rails and where it's headed or where it's maybe not heading or how it's not recruiting people was since 2009, we've always asked, how long have you been using Ruby on Rails? And mm-hmm. looking at the number around developers that fill out the survey at least, that have been using Rails for less than a year. It doesn't mean they're like a new software developer at all. Like they're just being new to starting to use Rails and starting to enter into that space. And that mm-hmm. number has been steadily dropping. So in 2009, the number was 13% of developers said that they've been using Rails for almost a year. In 2012, mm-hmm. that was 11%. 2014, it went on to 6%. 2016, it was 4%. This year, it was 3%. So that's had a steady decrease. And one of the things we were wondering if we could at, find out is, is there actually a, uh, an analytical response to, is Ruby on Rails dying? There's a lot of different ways you could try to answer mm-hmm. that question. But I think the question I'm curious about, is it recruiting or inviting developers to come join this party or not? And, and is it that developers are mainly influenced by what's new and shiny, new technology, or is Ruby on Rails still have a place in the making of modern, ambitious, whatever you want to call types of applications that we're building now. And as part of the problem is that we become maybe complacent as a community as far as, maybe because we're all busy running businesses now and doing well, or you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of, been a lot of success stories out of the folks that were early in the Rails community in a lot of ways. And, but what are we doing to kind of continue bringing on new developers into this community to keep the technology moving forward and evolving and applicable so that we're not all having to, you know, not that there's anything wrong with learning new languages, but if we want to keep working with Rails for a long time, we need to keep kind of inviting, I think, new people with new projects, at least into our sphere. Mm-hmm. There's more options for people. You know, There's a shitload um, of options. <laughs> right. so even, I feel for developers new to building web applications. I was chatting with mm-hmm. a, one of our new hires recently over lunch a couple hours ago, and they were they were talking about how, how intimidating Rails was at first to get into. And it was interesting for me. I'm like, I thought Rails is like the simplest things I ever got to start working within of any technology stack before. And they were talking about how much easier it was from the Raptor head around things with Node. And I'm like, I don't even understand that yet. So right. I haven't quite wrapped my head around all that. But I haven't either. I, you know, in our perspective comes from, at least mine, from Perl and PHP, certainly, but I was also doing a lot of Java. And the difference between those things and how much you have to do manually and everything and Rails was obvious. And it was so much easier and clearer and straightforward and faster to use. The way I always worded it was it allows us to create the kinds of products we want to create faster and better. Mm -hmm. And like you, I sort of am looking at having tried lots of different things. 
I don't think it's just the familiarity that I have with Rails that leads me to believe that for most things, Rails is still a really great option and actually a better solution for a lot of things when compared to what's out there. And I think we're still looking for the thing that is a new paradigm change in the way that Rails was a paradigm change. And I think as great even as Elixir and Phoenix are, they're an improvement over building web apps. Mm -hmm. They're not a fundamental shift in like a new way to build apps. And I think that the part of the change there was because like Rails was the first new framework built when there was also a paradigm change happening on the web, which was like web 2.0. Ajax was new. That was the shift that was happening. And Rails was created in that time. It allowed you to do in one line, like an Ajax call. Mm -hmm. And previously that was not possible. Yeah, that was a, a big deal. I remember getting invited to speak at a Ajax conference. Like it was a, that was a thing. I don't know if that's still something that people host anymore, but it was a, it was definitely a buzzword era of, around the Ajax thing. So, but yeah, Rails. I feel like what it allowed me to do was stop making having to make so many decisions when I started a project of what mm-hmm. tools and what libraries or database layers. I mean, it always felt like I was cherry picking new things that I wanted to play with for every new project, and wasn't able to build up a lot of like consistency between projects and just providing that set of conventions for us. And if you, if you kind of adhere mostly to them, then it makes it easier for other people to work on these projects because they kind of know where to expect things. And we've right. been able to make a business there. I'm like, yeah, within a couple of days of jumping into your project, we should be able to make some momentum on something in your project because we know where things should kind of be in a Rails application. Mm-hmm. And now you get that with a lot of different frameworks and that's great. And so now, but now there's like choice fatigue of should we use JavaScript or should we use these other languages and the server side, client side, what have you? And I don't even know how people navigate that successfully in the same way. Or if you're an entrepreneur and you're like, how do I navigate that? Where I feel like for a long time we would hear from startup people were like, well, we know that Basecamp or Shopify started with Rails. And since that seemed to be a good decision for them, we want to kind of follow in those footsteps and mm-hmm. we'll just kind of go along with that. And now when I do talk to new entrepreneurs, they're like, well, Rails, it's not new and shiny anymore. I don't know. People right. don't want to work on it anymore. I've heard that from people. Like, yeah. It's hard to find Rails developers. And I was like, I don't think you're looking hard enough. They're there. But I like that we haven't had to make a lot of those fundamental technology choices for the past several years, um, mm-hmm. 13, 14 years now we've been with, working with Rails or what have you. And that's been good for, I think, our industry to kind of worry about more interesting things like how the users are interacting with the application or how the business goals and the products we're building with it and not you know, I remember the PHP and Perl days as well, and I don't miss that environment pre then. And I also know that PHP is a great programming language in many ways, and there's a lot of great frameworks out that you can use that are very comparable to Rails now too. I think that for a little while, it looked like if we think of those paradigm shifts or changes in industry that Rails was at risk too, I think, and but responded to it of API-driven, API-heavy apps and Rails wasn't good. You know, you couldn't build an API as fast as you could in something mm-hmm. else. And Rails responded to that in some ways. It also, you know, you can't overlook the JavaScript frameworks that then they're talking to APIs. And so our web apps become more API driven. Uh, and I think that has been a driver in sort of new things coming along, which do that slightly better, which has caused people to say, well, that's the kind of app we have. So we're going to use node or something Mm -hmm. else which can do that yeah do you see any upcoming trends in that space of where rails needs to kind of shift things around or 
I do, and who knows what'll happen, right? But I think where we see it or where, where, I, where I see it is like data and machine learning and data engineering and data pipelines and big data and all that stuff is becoming more and more important. And if all of our applications start centering around incorporating machine learning and data and everything, things like strong typed functional programming languages might become much more important because that is suited for uh, data and handling data and uh, not mutating it and making sure that everything fits into your types and everything in a much better way than Ruby does. And then also just in terms of library support and where the ecosystem and the community and the learning is around things like machine learning and integrating it into our applications, Ruby's just essentially completely out of that, that it's all in Python and Java and Scala to a certain extent because that's on Java. Yeah, that's it's interesting when you think about like Python and I think, you know, they've had some variation over the years, some trends, uh, of, you know, mm-hmm. I think for a while because Ruby was definitely taking a big dent out of their space for a while, but it seems like Python's been really successful at sticking around and then they have a perception of being a better platform for building science-related applications and analytical right. tools and they've got better tool, you know, and I'm like, well, you can do a lot of that with Ruby probably, maybe not to the same extent, but it's possible. So it's like, what is Ruby and Rails kind of core target audience? Is it for types of usage, I suppose? And is is there some messaging that needs to be kind of crafted around there or some focus there? Or is it just really great at building like SaaS products and things like that? And that's kind of, because mm-hmm. that's historically been kind of a big driving force of that. Or is it API development? And Ruby kind of pitches itself as the language for developers, for developer happiness. And that's an important part of it. And I wonder if developers are still feeling that way. Like new developers, like I don't, I'm already happy working with Node or whatever. I don't th- right. I, I don't think new developers are feeling that way because they don't have the same pain that we all had when we switched to yeah. Ruby. If people really felt that way, they wouldn't be yeah. using JavaScript. That's true. That's true. <laughs> It's not the happiest environment to work with. And honestly, and then it goes both ways too, is that the experienced developers who felt that and switched to Ruby are now feeling other pains and they want to switch to more functional, more um, strongly typed languages to solve some of those other problems Mm -hmm. that they see in their work or the pains that they feel that they have. It's interesting watching how these things sounds evolve. negative, yeah, it's, but <laughs> it's, it's good. It's new sets of problems and new, so maybe sense of maturity as developers and yeah, or maybe where their projects are, or the types of projects they're working on, or there's more at risk now, maybe with the projects they're working on. Mm-hmm. It's been a fascinating uh, to kind of observe over the years and try to figure out how we fit into that and ourselves too. So, because our clients come from all different backgrounds with different types of applications and. Ruby on Rails is working really great, but we, yeah, we're seeing a lot of that like API is being a focus for a lot of the projects. But then we're yeah. we're having conversations about how much how much is too much React to implement in a Rails environment is a conversation we mm-hmm. find ourselves having. Should we be sprinkling yeah. it or should we do a lot of it with React? Like we have a project that's all front end React and all back end all the APIs and Rails, and we had this conversation, we inherited this project, and one of the conversations we were talking about how much time we were spending working on some new updates in this React project, and we're like, how much time would it have been just to cut off the React head right. and just render this stuff out with some server-side views again? It was kind of this aha moment of like, how much time are we wasting when Rails already does yeah. this for us pretty well? Someone else prior to us made that decision because they wanted to potentially experiment with some new technology, but 
it's kind of an interesting to like start pulling away new technology because when it, it's not necessary, I suppose. We've always prided ourselves on and tried to use the best tool for the job mm-hmm. and being focused on creating products that people love to use rather than you know, the technology that we want to use. With Rails, we had the intersection between the technology we wanted to use because we felt it was better and because it allowed us to build the kind of products. And I I remain convinced that there are better tools for certain jobs, but there will be something new in the future. But we, we haven't necessarily found it yet, and we'll continue to find it out. And reminding ourselves that we didn't choose Rails because we thought it was going to be a good business mm-hmm. decision. We chose it because we really liked it as designers yeah. and developers and it allowed us to do what we want to do. And I have no doubt that eventually other things will come along or that Rails will change in some way that makes it stay that mm-hmm. way. Good thoughts there. Cool. Well, if people want to find out more about you or follow along with you and Planet Archon, where's the best place for them to do that? You can find me on Twitter at Robbie Russell, R-O-B-B-Y Russell. Uh, and Planet Argon is planetargon.com. I'm based out of Portland, Oregon. And my open source projects are findable as well. Robbie, thanks for uh, joining me today and talking through sort of a walk down memory lane and a look at the future and a review of the hosting survey. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dad. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.